Uh, if you have a Bible with you, could I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 41. Uh, it's page 46 in the Bibles that are in the pews. For those who are not in pews, sorry. <laughs> we'll need to get more Bibles. Uh, if you were here last Sunday night, you'll know that we spent the evening thinking about names. And the reason for that was because we had reached the third commandment in our series just then, you shall not misuse the Lord's name. And as part of that service, we referred to some of the rather interesting names that people today call their kids, like uh, Buddy Bear, which is Jamie Oliver's new son. But on Wednesday night, uh, as I was driving home, uh, I was listening to Simon Mayo on Radio 2, and he ran an article on names. And apparently, there are now 22 kids called, now get this, ESPN, named after the American Sports Channel. And apparently it's pronounced Espen. Okay? But this morning, this morning as we continue our series, Living the Dream, based on the life of Joseph, we're about to be confronted in our first reading by a whole host of names. Biblical names that are loaded with meaning. In fact, this part of Joseph's story is said to be all about names. So, as we often do here at Windsor, let's stand for the public reading of God's word. We're going to start at verse 41 of Genesis 41, read to the end of the chapter, just 17 verses. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and he put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in a chariot as a second in command and people shouted before him, make way or bow down. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphanath, Peniah, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out of Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Anasseth, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. And when all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food. And then Pharaoh told the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. And when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. Please grab a seat. 
in the, uh, in the space of 13 years, Joseph has been in quite an adventure, a real roller coaster of a ride. He's gone from a pit to Potiphar's place, to a prison cell, to a place or palace to interpret a couple of dreams, and now he finds himself appointed to a position of privilege. I just did that for those of you who like alliteration. Uh, Joseph had reached dizzy heights. He occupies a significant position of authority over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh has identified Joseph as the most discerning and wise person he knows. That's what it says a couple of verses before we started. Verse 39. And so he puts a signet ring on his finger. He dresses him in fine robes and he hangs a gold chain around his neck. And when they head out into the town, Joseph travels a second in command, it says. And people shout, make way. Or they are encouraged to, according to some translations, to bow down before him. Joseph here is living the dream. Granted, his family aren't part of the adoring, worshipping crowd. Or at least they're not as yet. So his dream hasn't been totally fulfilled but the chances of it happening are surely now a lot higher that he's reached this position of privilege now although pharaoh has retained ultimate authority he has more or less given everything else to joseph including and here's a critical moment here is if you like a potential tipping point in the story pharaoh gives joseph a new egyptian name and a wife. But that's, such, that's not such a big thing. Well, it is. <laughs> but it's not at this moment in time in history. The name is the issue. But what did this name that I no doubt pronounced wrong, that's there in verse 45, what did it mean? I have no idea. Lots and lots of people have offered lots and lots of suggestions. But the bottom line No one really knows. And unlike other biblical names, as we're about to see in a moment, there's no meaning offered in the text. So at one level, I'm not that interested in what this name means. The issue is, why did Pharaoh rename Joseph? Because you see, what this signified and said to everyone was that in Pharaoh's mind, Joseph was no longer a mere Hebrew. He was now an Egyptian. And in many ways, this is a key, this is a defining moment in Joseph's life. A defining moment in his story. Because how Pharaoh sees Joseph, well, that's one thing, but how Joseph sees himself is another entirely. Here, if you like, is a watershed moment for Joseph. These are good times. It's all okay now. In fact, it's better than okay. Joseph has got it all together. He's landed on his feet. So it would have been incredibly easy for him to turn his back on his Hebrew roots, on his Hebrew family, and on his faith. Because let's be honest, it's far easier and some would say a lot more likely to forget God in times of prosperity than it is in times of adversity. Far easier to forget God when the going's good. It's D.L. Moody who said, we can stand affliction better than we can prosperity, for in prosperity we forget God. Do you know, whenever we need help, 
Whenever our backs are against the wall, whenever the economy collapses, our health deteriorates, our relationship disintegrates, whenever the road is marked with suffering and there's pain in the offering, whenever adversity stares you in the face, you seldom forget God. But whenever life's good, whenever you've got it together, whenever all is going well, it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to become independent, to become self-reliant, even a tad proud. Joseph needed God in that dark pit. Joseph needed God to help him deal with the constant temptation to compromise his faith with Potiphar's wife. Joseph needed God in that prison cell as he reflected on gross injustice. Joseph needed God in that palace to interpret a couple of dreams. But now, all that's behind him. He's sorted. He's been down, but he's come up smelling the roses. His need for God at this moment in the story, it's less obvious, it's less acute, it's less apparent. God has brought him through so much. But now that he's here, now that everything has fallen into place, what's Joseph going to do next? Where will he turn? What will he commit to? Will his need for God diminish? Well, Joseph did need to throw himself into this new job. There's no doubt about that. But it would also have been really easy for Joseph to throw himself into Egypt's culture and traditions. It would have been really easy for Joseph at this point in the story to sell his soul to the corporate culture. To sell his soul to the prevailing culture and just simply forget God. But he doesn't. You see, Joseph knows who he is and he knows who he is. Joseph realizes my need for God hasn't changed one bit, one fraction, one iota. And I have two reasons for saying that. One of them is implicit and I do want you to challenge me on this. And I have 11 questions for fellowship groups and 11 questions for anybody who wants them out of this morning. And this is one of the things I really want you to wrestle with and I really want you to come back at me on. Verse 46 is interesting. Have a look at it. It says there that Joseph leaves Pharaoh's presence and he embarks on a nationwide tour. And maybe I'm making too much of this. But it must have been so tempting for Joseph to just stay put. To stay where he was. To hang around Pharaoh and soak up the attention But I wonder, did Joseph recognize the potential risk of compromise if he did that? Was he concerned or was he aware that if he got too close to Pharaoh, too involved, too settled, that he might allow the Egyptian culture to squeeze him into its mold? Pharaoh was extremely influential. He could rename you. And so maybe Joseph was worried that if I spend too much time in this man's presence... I'm going to risk compromise. And therefore, he takes himself off. Literally, he gets himself out of the danger zone. Now, I know you could argue, but Joseph had a job to do. And was he not just simply going off to do it well? Surely, given his privileged position, he could have sent any number of people throughout the land of Egypt and save himself the journey, save himself the hassle. I think, and I know it's dangerous to throw out thoughts that are not explicit in the biblical text, but I think that Joseph sensed that Pharaoh wanted to Egyptianize him. There's no such word, but I think you know what I mean. 
Was Joseph worried that Pharaoh wanted actually to conform this Hebrew into the pattern of his worldview? And so Joseph decided, you know something? I'm going to walk away from the intensity of this environment. I'm going to still do my job, but I'm not going to risk selling my soul. And sometimes I want to suggest that that principle is worth bearing in mind and it's actually worth modeling in practice. That if you sense that hanging around with certain people in a particular context is going to have or is having a negative effect on who you are, then maybe stepping out of or away from their presence for a period of time is not such a bad idea. And that might be difficult for you, for example, in the work context. Let's face it, most of us can't just up and head off on a nationwide tour. But whenever any environment or any person or people has or is intent on having a negative and a damaging influence on your faith, then certain tough choices have to be taken in order to create distance so that you avoid conformity and compromise. I wonder, was that Joseph's concern? Or am I reading too much into it? You can pick that up this week. But something else happens that explicitly proves Joseph's desire to remain true to who he is. To stay rooted to his Hebrew faith and to his God. And just before the famine kicks in, it says that Joseph and his wife have two sons. And it says Joseph names them. And that's in verse 51. And so it's fascinating to discover that the two names that Joseph gave his sons are Hebrew names. Because as I said at the beginning, names in that culture, names at that time were loaded with meaning. And therefore, what you called your kids said a lot about you. What you called your kids conveyed to everyone else around you what was important to you. It communicated strongly. It actually clarified who you were. And so Joseph gives his boys these two Hebrew names. And the meanings of them, the reason behind them are there in verses 51 and 52. Manasseh means to forget. And Ephraim means to be fruitful or to be twice fruitful. But note, have a look at the text there. Note the reference to God. Joseph declares, God has made me forget. God has made me forget all of my trouble. God has made me fruitful in the land of Egypt. So these were not just Hebrew names. These were names of faith. Names that reflected Joseph's faith. Names that said something about his trust in the God of his fathers. Names that indicated to everyone around that Joseph was actually intent on bringing up his boys in the faith. Joseph may be in Egypt. Joseph may even be second in command in a hugely influential position. He may have vast responsibilities. Joseph might even have been given an Egyptian name. But in terms of his identity, Joseph gets that from his relationship with God. He knows who he is. He knows who he is. And although his life now seems so together in comparison to 13 years ago, He's got a great career now. He's got a key position. He's got successful results at work. These are seven years of abundance. He's married. He's two sons. Everything's going for him. But Joseph says, do you know something? I still need God. I still need God in my life. And so Joseph doesn't forget. So before we move on to the next episode in the story, I just want to ask you a bunch of questions. Where do you derive your identity? 
in an environment and in a culture that often wants to influence you in a particular direction, wants you to get you to buy into its values and embrace its way of life, how do you actually stay true to who you are? How do you stay true to whose you are? And also, where are you this morning? Are you in the midst of adversity? Or are you here enjoying some great times in life? But more importantly, where's God, irrespective of where you are? And do you agree that it's easier to forget God in the good times? Back to the story. Seven years of abundance are followed by seven years of famine. Just as Joseph predicted. And as chapter 41 ends, we discover not only are all the Egyptians coming to Joseph to buy grain, but actually the whole world is heading for Egypt to buy food from the dreamer. And so the stage, if you like, is set for the inevitable. And if you have a Bible, please keep it open at chapter 42. We're not going to read it, but I'm going to sort of like walk you through it a bit. And the famine, it says, has a devastating and a widespread effect. In fact, it has reached Canaan. And so Jacob, do you remember him? Jacob, actually having heard that there is food in Egypt, he sends his sons to go and buy some food. Now it's 20 years since we last met Jacob. For 20 years we've heard nothing about him. The last time we read about him was at the end of chapter 37. And although everything in that 20 year period has changed dramatically for Joseph, it's pretty clear that Jacob hasn't moved on. Nothing or little, has changed in his world. You'll remember how he actually vowed, I'm going to mourn Joseph's death until the day I die. But although grief, and I really want to say this sensitively, although grief is never truly got over, you do hope and pray that people don't get stuck in their grief. You do hope and pray that people are able to re-establish and attend to relationships with others and return to the ordinary demands of life and work. But Jacob, he's stuck in a moment. And he refuses to budge. And a comment like, and look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 42, a comment like, this is to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? Provides a bit of an insight into a state of mind. And then the fact that he sends ten sons. He keeps Benjamin at home because he's worried that harm will come to him. Well, all that proves is that favoritism is still alive and well in this family. Joseph hasn't changed a bit. Jacob is still not in a great place. But let's move on. Look at verse 6 of chapter 42. And let me read it. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when, get this, so when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Bingo! First dream has come true. At least partially. Because actually, it's only ten of his brothers. Benjamin's still back home. And in the first dream... All his brothers bowed down, so technically it's not quite come true. But 
Let's not go there. Jacob recognizes his brothers. Immediately he recognizes his brothers, but Jacob's or Joseph's brothers have no clue who he is. The only thing they know about him is he's the governor of the land. And that's perfectly understandable because Joseph is now not 17, he's 37. He's dressed like an Egyptian, complete with fine robes. He actually is out of context. And he speaks in a language they don't understand and therefore an interpreter is required. Now at 17, I want you to think about this, at 17, given what we know of Joseph and said about Joseph, that he was a spoilt brat at 17 and slightly unwise, you might have expected him to jump in at this moment just as his brother's faces are buried in the ground and said, Ha! Told you this would happen one day. But he doesn't. Because you see, Joseph has matured. He's grown. He's learnt from the past. Or has he? Because what Joseph does next is a bit of a mystery. Now, lots of Bible commentators excuse Joseph at this point. I'm not so sure we can. And I'm not so sure we should so quickly. Look at verse 7. Joseph chooses to treat his brothers like strangers and he speaks to them harshly. Why? Why did he not respond positively with generosity and forgiveness? Was there some or a lot of unresolved anger that all of a sudden rose to the surface? Was there a desire in Joseph to get some kind of revenge? Let's make these guys suffer a bit. Or was he, according to some Bible commentators, doing them a favor and helping them to grow and learn some lessons through this experience? The text doesn't make that clear. But clearly some further work's required before this guy can be reconciled to his brother's. Three times Joseph accuses them of being spies. Not once, three times. And he sets out to put them to the test. Not to test whether they're spies. He knows they're not spies. But he wants to test to see, are you honest men? And initially he hatches the plan to send one brother back and imprison the other nine. But that was a tad flawed. Because how was one brother going to take enough grain back to the family in Canaan? So Joseph revises the terms of his plan and he agrees to imprison one and send nine back to get the youngest brother. Now at this point in the story, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that we begin to detect definite regret from his brothers. The first sign of penitence emerges in verse 21. And as Joseph listens in on the conversation that the brothers are having, and the reason that Joseph could listen in is because he understood their language, but they didn't think he understood their language. So Joseph could listen in, and he listened in, and he heard the remorse, and it broke his heart, and he cried. And it actually says he had to take himself out of the situation for a moment. He had to compose himself. And then you think, surely Joseph, no. You've you've kind of set a test. You've detected a real sense of regret on your brother's part. There's been a shift in their attitude. Now reveal yourself. Now tell them who you are. Go on, Joseph. 
but he doesn't. He's not entirely convinced or else he's unwilling to be. And so he persists with a plan. And Simeon gets imprisoned. And nine brothers have to return to Jacob and explain again why one of their siblings hasn't come home with them. And Joseph then adds another twist. And you could say this is a rather cruel twist. Because he sells them bags of grain. But then he turns around and puts the money that they paid him back in their sacks. And so whenever they're on their way back to Jacob, one of the brothers opens his sack and can't believe his eyes. He's shocked. He's disturbed to find his money is still there. And it prompts despair and distress and fear. And he exclaims, what is this that God has done to us? And for me, again, that just shows the sense of regret and remorse and penitence that's kicking in here. What has God done to us? Joseph's chosen course of action is certainly having an impact. But was he right in it? Was he? Was this necessary? I don't know. But there is one thing that you can say. And in a sense, maybe this is the main thing I want to say this morning. Forgiveness and reconciliation wasn't going to happen easily. Restoration and trust was going to be a painful process, and it often is. And that doesn't justify us drawing it out. I honestly don't think you can take that from this story, that you can draw it out. I simply want to realize and acknowledge this morning that for some people like Joseph who have been badly hurt, who have been badly let down, who have been betrayed, that forgiveness is really hard. Like really, really hard. And if you're here this morning and you're finding it hard to forgive someone, And it's not proving as easy as you hoped it would be or as you thought it would be or as you expected it to be because you're a Christian. If when it comes to the crunch, you do keep holding back and maybe even if you're honest with yourself and with anyone else, there is a bit of a sense of anger within you and you carry that and it rises to the surface every now and again. And in fact, you sometimes seek a wee bit of revenge then all I'm saying to you this morning is just be honest with God. Just be honest with yourself. Because forgiveness is hard. And it is a painful process. And I don't want to suggest other ways. And the brothers finally arrive home. And they tell Jacob what's happened in Egypt. And they also have to explain why one of them's not with them. It's a sense of deja vu for Jacob. And then, it's at this point, that the other eight open their sacks and they discover that all their money is there. And that just sends Jacob into despair. And he accuses them of bereaving him of his children. And in a cry of self-pity, he exclaims in verse 36, all this has happened to me. Which is a tad selfish. Because what about Simeon? 
Because surely any real dad would do everything he could to save one of his sons if he had the chance. Surely. But even when Reuben offers Jacob his own sons as a guarantee that Benjamin will come back with him along with Simeon after he's secured his release in Egypt, Jacob's having none of it. Benjamin is going nowhere, and therefore, by implication, Simeon is written off. As far as Jacob's concerned, in a sense, he's left to rot in a prison cell in Egypt. This is not Jacob's finest moment. And it's a very different insight into the man who in Genesis 32 wrestles with God and is blessed by God. But maybe, as we pause here in the story until next week, maybe we find hope. Because once again you realize and you discover that the heroes of the faith, and Jacob is one of the great heroes of the faith, he appears in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame, the biblical heroes of faith didn't always get it right. In fact, they got it pretty wrong at times. And therefore, there's hope for every single one of us. And so as I say, if you want to take this further, as an individual, I've got 11 questions for you to reflect on out of this this morning. Alison.